I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. This week, uh, one topic, but a pretty important topic, obviously. It's the nexus of sports and COVID. And I talked to three guests who have been in the middle of this coverage. First up is Donovan Bennett, a host, podcaster, and writer for Sportsnet. He is joined by Amal Delich, who is a senior producer of original audio for Sportsnet. Both of those guys are obviously Canadian-based. I worked with both of them, two of my favorite colleagues. We did a, a podcast almost nearly two years ago at this point called Sports on Pause, where we examine the nexus of COVID and sports. And so I bring them back to sort of discuss where we are now, how the topic uh, is viewed in Canada, why the topics become so politicized in the States. That's the topic of COVID. Um, the challenges of talking about a subject like COVID where and sports where the public is so exhausted. So we start with a discussion with the three of us on that, that I hope uh, you'll find interesting. They are followed by Bruce Arthur, who's a columnist for the Toronto Star, a longtime great sports columnist who, at the start of the pandemic, switched from covering sports to covering COVID and has just done some remarkable work and by and large has been much more right than not when it comes to what he's written about. And so we get into the idea of, not the idea, but we get into his backstory of, uh, of how this came about, how he switched from sports as lead columnist in sports at the Toronto Star to, to, to covering COVID, the challenges of that. Uh, again, we talk about sort of how, um, how to present this to a public that's, that's really exhausted by the topic. Bruce, who spent a lot of time in the United States, his take on why, um, the politicization of this issue has happened in the U.S. versus Canada, where it certainly is politicized, but not as politicized. Uh, getting a ton of vitriol on Twitter, as Bruce has. He really hears from the anti-vax community a lot and what that's been like. Then we get into the Olympics and what we expect from the Olympics and um, how China is going to proceed when it comes to the nexus of COVID and the Olympic sports. And finally, uh, just to finish up on some fun stuff, we get into the Leafs. And where we think uh, the Leafs may go, I think both of us are buying in this year that uh, it's a different Toronto Maple Leafs team than other years. So it was a very heavy Canadian edition of this podcast. First up, Donovan Bennett and Amal Delich, followed by Bruce Arthur on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, I'm excited about this show because I work with these two guys at Sportsnet in Canada, uh, two of the best colleagues I had. Uh, both incredibly smart and excellent at what they do. They're not going to be happy to hear that. They don't really take compliments well, but it is the truth. Donovan Bennett is a host, podcaster, and writer for Sportsnet. Amal Delich is the senior producer of original audio for Sportsnet in Canada. Amal may have another title, and if he does, he should let me know because I, that's the only one I know him as. We were all part of a um, short-run podcast called Sports on Pause, which, to sort of distill it, it, it was a podcast that examined the nexus of COVID-19 and sports. We talked to athletes, executives, health professionals, journalists, 
about how individuals and sort of the sports industry at large was dealing with the pandemic. What's crazy, and these guys I think will agree with me, what's crazy to think about is that podcast first episode was April 13th, 2020. And we are now heading into 2022. And these issues remain pretty significant, perhaps even more significant today than when we started this podcast, just given uh, the Olympics coming up in the NHL. And I'm pleased to be joined by both um, Donovan and Amo. Welcome. That would be crazy for you guys. Now you're on my podcast. We used to do one together. I mean, uh, I knew this day was going to come at some point if we hit a if we hit a kind of a stoppage again or a postponement. So I'm happy to be doing this again. Not I don't want to be doing this because the place we work is. I mean, we need sports to be running to kind of do our jobs. But um, yeah, thanks for having us on. All right, Donovan, I'm going to start with you. That was Amma, by the way, just so re- listeners can uh, can um, distinguish between their voices. All right, so Donovan, I, I, let's start with just sort of a general question here, and this is how we'll get into it. One of the challenges I think that we found when it came to our podcast was th- the topic is really important, and we were providing, I would consider it sort of service, or maybe service journalism was a little too big for what we were doing, but it falls under that service journalism, sports service journalism. And um, at that time, the public was not exhausted by COVID. They were scared, fearful, but all of this stuff was generally speaking pretty new. And I think when we were bringing people on, like, you know, Haley Wickenheiser hadn't talked for 15,000 times. And and the experts that we had on, those um, virologists and immunologists, you know, they hadn't been interviewed by the media like as much as they have been now. So I wonder when you think about this, people are exhausted by the topic, but the topic still remains incredibly important. And if you're in sports, how do you balance this? In your opinion, how do you balance the idea that this is really important for people to hear while understanding that they are probably exhausted because they've been inundated with COVID information now for nearly two years? Great question. I don't know if there's a right answer. I would add to that. How do you balance the fact that as a journalist, you too are exhausted of it exhausted of it impacting your life your job exhausted of covering it quite frankly we many of us get into journalism and sports journalism specifically because it's a bit of the sandbox at the playground you want this great escape from all of the ills in life and here we are and covid makes you unlike other professions confront them head on when we started the podcast there was a couple of challenges and really questions that we would all ask each other when we were talking about pitches or guests. Are we doing a service? Are we adding information? Are we exploiting the topic? And is this a reach? Is there an actual sports tie-in to what we're saying? Or are we just using a very loose relationship in order to create some content? Now, I feel like well, you, you, you can't get away from it. It's impacting who is going to be in your fantasy lineup, what the betting line is going to be, when games are being played, how uh, games are being played, who's in attendance at games. So when we started it, I honestly think people were really, really thankful for the coverage because it gave them some clear indication as to what was going on with their favorite teams or leagues. It was giving many people a palatable way to get into the topic that was pretty daunting, but wasn't as overwhelming as maybe the nightly news and the ticker of how many new cases there were that day. And it was a glimmer of hope 
I can still care and think about sports and I don't have to feel guilty about it because there's this terrible thing that's impacting the whole world. Now, to whatever years later, it is the most divisive topic. At the time, we were all new to it and a little bit unsure. Now people are entrenched in their beliefs and everyone's an expert and everyone's a scientist and a doctor. So it is now, I find when I'm reporting on it or talking about it, more divisive than race, uh, which is saying something. Um, it, it is uh, something that we have all, I think, at some point or another fatigued of and are tired of talking about and or has just become white noise. But it actually is having a material impact on the integrity of the sports that we love more so than it than it did before. So I, I think that conundrum of how you balance all of those things is something that we all are continuing to struggle with, quite frankly, because I don't know if anyone has found the exact right tone because it's constantly changing. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is this, and Amal, as a podcast editor, is in his mind editing a third of the things I've already said because I've gone way too long. But... but I think people love certainty. Certainly in sports, we love certainty. The box score, the stats, who won, who lost. It's very binary. And this topic is not binary at all. There is no certainty. And so how do you, how do you run a marathon when you don't know where the finish line is? And essentially, that's what we're doing as journalists. We are covering this thing, having no idea when it's going to end and how we should be appropriately talking about it. Because it, it would be one thing if it was going to be a month thing, like we thought at the time, or a year thing, as we hoped, remember? You know, after the summer, when it's warm, people are outside, it's fine. Now we're two plus years in, and people are saying it's an endemic, not a pandemic. So we are running a marathon with no mile markers, not really knowing um, how fast and how to pace ourselves and what's appropriate at the time. It, it's, it is, I think, the, the most challenging uh thing I've, I've had to do it in my career. Um, but quite frankly, people love sports on pause and in some way, um, it was also the most rewarding, if that makes sense. Um, well, um, Donovan brings up a lot of sort of interesting points there. One of the things that really, I think just struck me, given what he just said is that when we started it, there wasn't the divisiveness of, on this topic. I'm not saying people didn't have their opinions on it, but Certainly wasn't as polarizing as it is today. And I remember, and you sort of get your thoughts on this. I think one of the things that when we did Sports on Pause, and, made, and this is sort of, I think, reflective of covering COVID in sports back in, in uh, mid-2020, was that there was a craving of information as a sports fan. Like, how is this going to impact me? How is this going to impact the teams and people I love? That's not necessarily the case as much today. I, mean, I think people are interested, obviously, like Donovan said, like, who's in, who's out? But... Um, so many news consumers have just essentially made up their mind, like either they support the idea of these protocols or they don't. And I and from my perspective, at least when we first started this, it seemed to me more that the audience just really wanted information like, OK, what, you know, bring this doctor on to talk about, like, what's going to happen if my favorite athlete or team gets COVID? Like, will they be back in a week or will they be suffering for a year? That conversation has changed. And I think. As Donovan said, a lot of that conversation has changed because of the polarization. I mean, you heard Donovan say, you know, might be more polarizing than race. Um, that's a pretty strong statement from someone like Donovan. Uh, 
uh, you know, pretty prominent, prominent uh, African Canadian in, in Canada to say. And so I don't think he's wrong. Maybe I, as a white male in Canada, my perspective, I, I don't think is as on that topic, obviously, uh, is as notable as his. But man, I can just tell you from living in both the United States and Canada, in my, in, in my entire life, I would have never thought this would have been a polarizing topic the way it is. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have thought either, especially how deep we've gotten with the topic and like who's who's vaccinated, who's unvaccinated. But kind of going back to what Don was saying right at the beginning of the conversation was like my fantasy line, sports betting, like that is completely being impacted. But when we started the podcast, I remember we were kind of trying to provide a service, but a lot of these episodes that we were putting out at the time had a pretty good shelf life. Now, when I'm producing an episode, whether it's around hockey or even curling, baseball is a little different with the lockout, but when just those two sports alone, um, everything's changing so fast. Back in April of 2020, we did an episode and it, the shelf life was pretty good. You know, what the NBA can learn from China, you know, April 17th, that was an episode. We, we did that episode and then the bubble came about, um, what the NHL must do to get back on the ice. You know, obviously the NHL has a lot of, had a lot of issues the last couple of years, but I mean, trying to get back on the ice was a challenge of theirs. And now we found out, you know, after the bubble was over, they did, they don't want to do a bubble ever again. Um, there was a shelf life for the medium that we were working in. Nowadays, it's, you know, I'm getting calls from hosts and other producers being like, when you got, we got to update this episode, we got to update this episode because things are just happening much, much faster. Re leagues are reacting faster because I think they're at the point now where they can't lose any more money. Uh, even us as a rights holder in Canada for hockey, uh, every Saturday night that we're not on the air, uh, it really hurts us. Uh, and we need to kind of figure out with the leagues, how can we get, how can we get these games back up and running as fast as possible? Um, and, you know, I, I'll say this, Richard, I saw you tweeted out the world juniors. Yeah. Canadians are crazy with the world juniors, but I guarantee you're going to see some crazy ratings in Canada for the world juniors. Cause it's the only thing on television right now um, in terms of, you know, on ice. So yeah, it's, it's, it's it was much easier to do an episode like uh, a podcast, like sports on pause in April, 2020 compared to today. I, and we kind of chatted this about this on, in our group chat. It would just be so tough to do right now. It's just so fast moving, a new variant every like six months uh, we're having to adjust and to, to do an evergreen episode that kind of really pinpoints a certain topic. I don't think would last very long. I agree with that. Donovan, I want to ask you about um, how you have felt the, um, the access has been for you over the last year when it comes to trying to get athletes, trying to get coaches, trying to get people in the sport. Um, COVID obviously, presents or has presented uh journalists not being in the same place a lot of times as athletes um some of that's changed obviously you know raptors now media get can can go uh same with the leaps but you know a lot of these uh conferences are still being done over zoom uh as opposed to in person um for you how's it been you know you do a lot of sit downs and so you know that's that's an interesting in, in the event that you've got to talk to the team uh, maybe personal PR people, team PR people. Um, and while it's a little different scenario, obviously, than talking to somebody after a game, you probably have a sense of like, are athletes comfortable with, you know, doing some sit down in a hotel room where you're six feet apart? How's the team feel about that? Do you got to wear a mask uh, uh, except on camera? So I'm just curious of your reflections on this. Let's say over the last six months, what it's been like to uh, to try to interact with athletes amid this COVID protocols. 
been tough. And, you know, we did a lot of Zoom interviews and we tried our best to increase the production value and have team videographers shoot on the other side and to put the athletes in monitors and rent beautiful spaces to the interviews. And at the end of the day, you're still talking to someone on the screen, something that I think we're all tired of. No disrespect to, you know, the people who have made, you know, Zoom and FaceTime. Um, but it, 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 you lose a lot of the interpersonal communication, uh, reading the body language, the off-camera conversation as someone is mic'd up and gets into the room, a lot of that stuff that instruct how you conduct the interview. So, so that has been tough. And I, I think people are, are, I'm certainly tired of producing it. I think people are tired of consuming the interviews that way. And, and I also am afraid that once that precedent gets set, it's a slippery slope on how do you get that back? And well, if I'm a... I executive producer, why do I got to fly you to go to this interview? You got a Zoom account, just do it on Zoom. Uh, so, so there's things uh, like that that I worry about, those implications. The in-person interview started to come back end of the summer, early fall, around um, media day in the NBA and NHL. They started to, to come back. And luckily, you know, me personally, we were able to bank a bunch uh, before the NBA season. Now I have this conundrum and we've got you know, Black History Month just around the corner where we'll produce a lot of content. I have the conundrum of, I feel uncomfortable even reaching out to a PR person and asking if I can interview with athletes in person when I know a team has half of their players in, in health and safety protocols right now, that if said player gets put into it after a shoot because of something that happened, even if it wasn't from me or my crew, the assertion might be there. And these are things that are impacting, you know, actual games, livelihoods. And so, so that's the balance of fighting for that great access, but also understanding that for the athletes and teams, the main thing still has to be the main thing. And we are in unprecedented times. And in that, that change is in the last two weeks I'm talking about where, you know, two weeks ago, I would have been steadfast that we need to do this interview in person. Now I feel like I might get laughed out of someone's email inbox if I suggest that. So hopefully um, we get to a place where uh, we're, we're in a better spot, but it, it has been, and this is, I guess, the key word for everything. It has been fluid uh, in terms of the type of access you get, type of access you're, you're willing to fight for. And quite frankly, the type of ac access that I'm comfortable with, like real life plays into it as well. I have a young child who is too young to be vaccinated. My wife is pregnant. Is it really worth it for me to interview ex-athlete in person? I'm a close contact. And, and then if my wife gives birth, I can't be in the operating room. So uh, it, it, I understand certainly that this has been a fluid thing and it would be uh, a great day when it is no longer part of the decision matrix that we have when we're thinking about creating content. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Safe, uh, first of all, safe pregnancy to uh, your wife, who both Amal and I know is awesome. But that's, I appreciate your honesty and um, letting, people, letting people in on that. Amal, I want to ask you, I'm going to start with you. Donovan will follow, but this is like a real tough question um, because I'm going to ask you to make an observation about the country south of yours. 
let, let me be the, let me sort of start though where with my interpretation of this, you can sort of either tell me I'm full of shit or you agree and why. I, I have found that in Canada, while there are certainly um, there are certainly groups of people who are clearly anti-vax, there are certainly groups of people who have made it clear how they feel about um, COVID-19 and how they feel about, um, you know, government's role in vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I'm getting at is there, 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 it is a polarizing topic, but, and here's the, but it is by no means, at least in my opinion, as close to polarizing as it is in the United States. And that also gets, I think, into the sports element where there is not a day that goes by in the U S where people aren't debating within a sports context, everything about COVID from whether um, college bowl games should be happening to college bowl games should not be happening to people like accusing people of who want like sports to slow down of being whatever. Soft, woke, etc. You know, it gets into very stupid kind of areas. I have not seen that level of. I don't. Know, I keep using the word polarization, and I wish I could think of a better word. But I have not seen that level of polarization in Canada when it comes to the sports realm. I'm not saying there aren't people who believe X, but it doesn't feel as intense and as two sides the way it does in the U.S. So, one, do you agree with that? And two, if you do agree with that, why? And, I, and I'll just finish up before I let you go. Maybe the why is as simple as 37 million versus 330 million. And like at the end of the day, like there's just so many people in the U.S. compared to Canada that you're going to have these divergent tribes. But I really do feel like I'm in a rare position, at least when it comes to this specific topic, given that I am an American living in Canada and I sort of live in both worlds because I obviously have family in the States and I work for a U.S. publication the polarization is different. I'm not saying it doesn't exist up here, but at least the intensity of it is different within the sports context. And I want you and Donovan just to offer your thoughts because you're looking at it in reverse the way I'm looking at it because I'm clearly looking at it from a U.S. perspective. Yeah, I think when it comes to scale, like in the U.S., it's definitely 10 times more. And that's probably why you hear much more of it. But uh, in Canada, I just, to me, it, it's, I feel like we're just trying to get through this time and get to the end of the tunnel and get there safely um, and not have casualties along the way. That's kind of the biggest concern of ours. But I think in the U S sports is just so mega. It's so big. It's just it, the amateur level of sports is just massive in the U S it's religion in a lot of different parts of the U S or in Canada. And Don can speak on this too on the collegiate level. Um, yeah, college university football in Canada is big to a certain extent, but it's no nowhere comparable to the to the U.S. level. Um, you know, if the Yates Cup was canceled this year, I don't know if there'd be an uproar. But I'm sure if the Rose Bowl was canceled, I I don't think people would be very pleased about that. So, um, or the Vanier Cup, I'll play a better comparison. But uh, yeah, I just think uh, we're trying to get through this. Obviously, we don't like it. We don't like missing games, but uh, and missing our sports. But yeah, the scale is just so much bigger and there's so many different levels of sport uh, that are being impacted. I mean, even if you see on the East Coast of the U.S. right now, there's uh, Canada as well and Ontario as well. But uh, there's a massive referee shortage uh, in, in, in high school hockey and amateur hockey. And refs just don't want to 
participate. They've kind of gotten their wits end where they're like, we're not going to do this anymore. And parents are losing their minds. Uh, there's some really great reports out of the Boston area where like news reporters are just trying to figure out what's happening and parents, and it's quite obvious because parents are just like, you know, we can't take this anymore. Uh, we need to put our kids on the ice. And it's like, well, that's also another level of uh, passion that parents have to get their kids on the ice, get their kids playing. And that's just like the, the, the grassroots level, right? Um, so I think that's kind of my take on is just one scale and two is just uh, sports is religion uh, in a lot of different parts of America that uh, we just don't have that quite as much here in Canada. It's a good take on Well, Donovan, you played college football in Canada. And so while obviously it's a very, very different uh, structure uh, versus the U.S. For one, it's just the monetization. It, it's not. It's like comparing, you know, Saturn to Earth. It's just not in the same realm. But given you play college football, I think you have an interesting perspective on you see what the American college football system is like. And Amo hits it on the head. Like, I can't even comprehend like as an American, the college football semifinals and finals being canceled, like just the, the amount of, the amount of blowback that the NCAA college football playoffs, ESPN, whoever is sort of involved in that, that they would get, I just, I don't think they'd be able to do it even if it was the right thing to do scientifically. I just, like I almost said, it's just, it's too ingrained in the country as a religion where they wouldn't cancel it. And so, um, Maybe I'm going to hit on it. Maybe in the end of the day, it's just scale. 337 million people all having their own opinions. You throw that all into a tinderbox and the noise is just exponentially louder than if 37 million people are doing the same thing. And the Vanier Cup, for those who don't understand, is the national championship in college football here in Canada uh, that Amo was referencing. I agree and disagree. So, I agree that it's much more extreme in the U.S. And the response to COVID and the sensibilities around it and the government intervention has all been less than in comparison to here in Canada. We really hampered ourselves in the Summer Olympics because we made it very difficult for our athletes to train and travel where that was not the case in the United States. So we have taken a much more serious approach towards fighting COVID-19 structurally. Um, and, and so culturally, there is that difference where, you know, talk to Arash Madani about it. He's covering, you know, baseball series in Texas. He's on the sidelines wearing a mask and he's being heckled because he's wearing a mask. Like, so, so it's not even, you know, a, a personal choice. It is a sign of who you are as a person if you decide to protect yourself from the vaccine. He was staying in a hotel. Uh, one person he saw in the hotel was wearing a mask indoors. That person, he strikes up a conversation, they're from Montreal. So it just lets you know the, the different tenor in the United States, in parts of the United States, because the United States geographically is like a bunch of different countries and cultures. Um, it, it's, it's far from monolithic uh, than it is. So I think there are wider extremes in the United States because of that. But I do think, actually, uh, at its core, in some ways, it is more polarizing in Canada. And here's why. We have true universal health care, not Obamacare, which was kind of watered down. So it was going to be able to get passed. You know, you could still have your provider if you just like we actually have universal health care. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter what money, you have a little piece of plastic that allows you to get the basic needs in terms of uh, drugs and medicine and allows you to get surgeries that aren't, um, you know, cosmetic, if you will. And because of that social construct, because baked into the fabric, 
not only of our country, but quite frankly, our taxes, which across the board are higher in the, than in the United States. It's an understanding that we all collectively are in this together. We have a social contract. We all are going to look out for each other. You, you, you can't buy your way to the front of the line to get a surgery because of who your provider is or where you work or where your dad works. So that's an understanding. All of a sudden, we, we, that theory is put to the test where we have this global pandemic, which might impact you, but given your age, luck, uh, your history, it might not impact you in the same way. And you may get it and be asymptomatic and give it to someone else uh, because of their situation. They might be in dire straits and be symptomatic. So we have to really think collectively. And so why I say it's more divisive is because there's a lot of people who say, well, our laws say that I have personal freedoms and personal rights, and I have autonomy over my body. And there's a lot of other people who say, excuse me, we, we have all been paying into the system to keep each other safe. So it's your duty and your obligation to keep everyone safe, not just yourself. And so if you are in an ICU or a hospital, because you didn't take the proper precaution, it doesn't just impact you. It impacts my grandmother. It impacts my child. It impacts a lot of people. So I think that's why it's divisive because I think it'd be one thing if people said, I, I, I'm just going to stay in my cabin, not interact with the rest of society. And if I get it, I get it. But here in this country, if you fall and break your leg in your cabin, you're going to a hospital and you're not paying a dime. And so that's why I think um, it is in a way more divisive. And the sports angle, it's true. It's extreme. But our, our men's hockey team is, is obviously not going because the NHL are uh, pulled out of the Olympics along with the PA because the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has had a material impact on the NHL season. But let us not win gold. Let us win silver or bronze or not medal with a bunch of players that were playing in leagues in Austria and Russia. Let's see what the conversation is retroactively about did we be a little bit too cautious and conservative in terms of handling the vaccine. Steve, Steve Eisenman tweeted about the fact that maybe we should just stop testing players if they're asymptomatic and they're feel free. And, you know, I disagreed with that statement, but a lot of people in the league and a lot of people who are fans of the league agreed. So when it comes to um, messing with our one true love hockey, uh, I think we are pretty polarized on the impact of COVID. I'm sorry, Richard. I, I want I want to add one thing to what Don was just kind of saying. What he said, what he said previously re regarding kind of requests, requesting for access. Um, I've talked to, the last like month and a half. I've talked to a lot of my peers in the U.S. who are in podcasting, and I've asked them like, "Hey, what are some tactics that you guys use to kind of get access again?" As we're kind of winding, oh, we thought we were winding down with the, with COVID nineteen, and uh, they said nothing's changed. You know, a simple email or phone call, or whatever. Um, I've completely taken the opposite route on this. Um, I'm having more than ever, I'm having conference calls and FaceTimes with PR directors trying to find ways to get into rooms and what kind of protocol do I have to take, who needs to be fully vaccinated, proof of vaccinations, like the level of like detail that goes into just getting into a room nowadays, from my perspective as a Canadian, uh, Canadian journalist, has increased tenfold um and this goes just to what don was saying like i think we're a little we're in this together and you know god forbid we do an interview with uh, a coach or general manager or a, a player and we are the cause 
of something that has an outbreak within that within that organization, like that would really hurt us. And I think we're that much more careful because it is a domino effect, um, and we don't want to be the the catalyst for that. So, yeah, from my end of things, it definitely increased tenfold. Um, there's projects that we've had to put on the back end just because we can't get access, and a lot of the hosts are just saying like, I don't want to do Zooms, I don't want to do Skypes anymore. I'm just not interested in it. I want to get back in in into a room to actually feel out the individual because I'm missing that interaction. Yeah, I think it, it's very different in terms of the 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 behind the scenes production of how U.S. productions are doing it versus Canadian productions. All right, let's end on this, Donovan. I'm gonna start with you. It's the Olympics. Um, you referenced it. It's two months away or less than two months away, I should say, at this point. And so the NHL has already uh, announced that their players are not playing, so that changes the um, changes the dimensions. An uh, interest probably of the men's hockey tournament looks for now that the women are still going to go, which obviously in Canada is going to be a major deal. I'm not going to ask you a question like, well, should the Olympics be postponed? Because I'm a realist. The Chinese are not going to postpone the Olympics. Like, th- we're, not, we're dealing with a country... Um, that's very different from countries like the U.S. and Canada. We know that from their government structure. We know that from their human rights abuses, quite frankly. So the reality is that the Olympics are going to exist. Question is, what should, what should Olympians from Canada and the U.S. do? And sort of how do you see that? Now, the NHL said that one of the reasons that they decided not to go was if they do test positive in China, they're really in a in, in, in sort of uncharted waters as to where they would coalesce, where they would try to uh, isolate. And, you know, it brings up a lot of security issues. It brings up a lot of isolation issues. Um, and so I'm just setting all this up. And this is something I asked you guys before we came on as to how do you think this is going to be covered in Canada? Because I've already stated, and if NBC proves me wrong, I'll certainly own it. But I believe NBC, as they always have with, Olympic games is they're going to try to make it a celebration of athletics. They downplay the ills of the host country as much as they can, because they're ultimately partners with that host country. And when it comes to COVID, the reality is because of the way NBC presents the Olympics, they don't want to make this a, 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 the global pandemic Olympics. They, they want you quite frankly, to try to forget about it for three hours. So they may mention in passing if somebody tests positive, or they may mention in passing how it might be impacting the games. But as a general rule, coverage in the U.S. is about narrative storytelling. And generally speaking, it's very U.S.-centric. And it's how, I'll just be blunt, it's how American X overcame Y to make the medal stand. Like, that's generally, that's the dream for NBC. Or, you know, or like, uh, here's the drama of this event. And, oh, this is how it sort of ended. I have um, different... Expectations, I think, when it comes to Canadian, how the Canadians uh, cover this stuff, and I think I have different expectations because I think, um, I think the CBC is a different cat than NBC, and so I want to end it with you and Amal because you've obviously had more experience with that organization than I have. One, what do you expect? How do you expect CBC to cover the Beijing Olympics? And two, how should they cover it? What, what, what should? What is their responsibility as a public broadcaster to the public when it comes to covering this stuff? I think you're bang on in that a lot of the coverage is going to be said athlete X overcomes issue Y to become uh, a hero or heroine. I just think issue Y is going to be some sort of pandemic related COVID related hardship 
that allows them to you know persevere and succeed. I think that is going to be the conflict resolution that we're going to see in a lot of our storytelling. Thus, hey, yeah, we covered COVID. Didn't you see that beautiful feature with the amazing uh, B-roll and slow-mo shots? Uh, I think that will be the case. In terms of CBC specifically, I think what they have and what many you know, news organizations and, and broadcasters and brands should strive for is a clear line of demarcation and a separation of church and state. So there is CBC Sports, and then there is the CBC News Department, considering, you know, their radio channels and certainly their the news program, the national. And I think uh, the national and CBC News will take a hard, deep look at the the longstanding issues that COVID has created, um, both economically, culturally, socially, um, and, and historically in terms of, um, you know, theories of how it may have started in China, how we can draw a, a line from that to way, the way it's being talked about and, and covered in China right now, uh, the implications for the athletes if they test positive, so on and so forth. And I think CBC Sports will keep it pretty close to the vest and cover the games and their coverage of COVID will be around who is or is not available. And will someone not be in the medal round because they got an inconclusive test. And that's what the, the journalism will look like. And I, I quite frankly don't think that there's anything wrong with that approach because I think sometimes, you know, the quote unquote uh, entrenched beat sports journalists, if they're covering uh, these stories a little too closely, they, they, as you know, can lose some access. And so there should be another piece of that arm to, to make sure that the full breadth of coverage is balanced. That's, that's what I'm expecting uh, from CBC. And I'm, I'm quite frankly, I'm looking forward to watching it. Amal, give you the last word. Bang on. I think he's bang on. I think we're going to see a lot of journalists from the CBC uh, go there who aren't uh, sports connoisseurs. And they're just going to go there and cover what's really happening uh, in China around the Olympic Games. What are we not seeing uh, that we should be seeing? And I think we'll be we'll probably get a really good critical look at how this Olympics is gonna how it came together and how it's coming together in live, you know, minute by minute. Uh, but I also think the CBC also has a job to do, which is they got to pay off their rights. I mean, the rights to the Olympics ain't cheap, so they need to provide a product that's gonna bring eyeballs. And uh, I'm sure curling will be top of mind for a lot of Canadians because curling rides, curling uh, numbers go crazy during the Olympics. But if, if the they get if they get there, given the COVID positives, but yeah, let's yeah, see. if they get there, like they just canceled the Canadian mixed doubles, right, um, in, in Manitoba. So it's going to be a little wild. But I, like Donovan said, I am excited to actually have journalists from the CBC go there and cover the games as sports not being their number one priority i would love I, I can't wait to kind of see that perspective on on the olympic games donovan bennett is a host podcaster and writer for sportsnet in canada amal delch senior producer of original audio for sportsnet amal do you have another title Did it, or am i correct no you got it that's good that's good you got me all right these guys um i know these guys for many years now and again it was a real privilege uh, to work with them both on um this podcast that we did it was a short run podcast called sports on pause where really felt, at least in Canada, we were ahead of the curve in terms of sort of really going in depth and discussing the nexus of, uh, of these issues, at least in a pretty intellectually sound way. I just would never in my, in a million years have guessed 
I'd actually be doing a podcast with you guys the last week of December 2021, where literally so many of these issues still exist. Maybe we shouldn't have made it a short run podcast, although I think by I think by now the audience would have been burned out if we were providing this every week. Well, it just became normal sports coverage. It, one of the reasons why the podcast went away is because that was how everyone was covering sports. But you're not getting off the hook that easy. Before, before we go, I can't say we let you go because it's your podcast. Before we go. The great news is I could cut all this out, as you know, because it's my podcast. But go on. I probably And will. you probably will. Yeah. But you, you've lived in both countries. You've covered right. the sport in both countries. You talk about the juxtaposition on the conversation in both countries. For me, one piece of it is you've had big name future Hall of Fame athletes as vocal, if not anti-vaxxers, then uh, vaccine hesitant. Aaron Rodgers, Kyrie Irving. You haven't you haven't had that in Canada in the same way. And, you know, these athletes have not 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 publicly. I I can't tell you. Right. they, They may feel the same way, but we you're right. We have not heard them publicly say that. And I, my question to you is, do you think that is part of the difference in the discourse in the two countries? Because there are a lot of people who say, I, I feel the way I feel and, and I'm emboldened in it because Kyrie feels the same or Aaron Rodgers feels the same, so on and so forth, where they can't point to a Connor McDavid or a Sidney Crosby or a Jamal Murray and say the same thing. Yeah, I mean... It's always weird to be on the other side, obviously, on your own podcast answering questions, not on them, but I'm happy to do it. You said it more eloquently, and Amelie, you can feel free to uh, weigh in, too, after I do. I think you actually hit it uh, and said it more eloquently than I could. At the end of the day, one thing I learned about living in both countries, and this is where the healthcare system really comes into play. There is this construct among citizens of Canada, which, you know, I'm not a citizen, but, but I am part of the healthcare system. I pay taxes in two countries. I have an Ontario health card. And there is this construct where part of your duty as a citizen is that you believe that the, the, the country's healthcare system only works as if the person with the least means has the same amount of access to healthcare as the person with the most means, that everybody is equal within this system. And I think that that ultimately filters, this is just my guess, I think that ultimately filters all the way up to the most prominent people in the country when it comes to athletics. Most of these guys grew up somewhere in Canada, many in smaller communities. And I think at a certain level, they have bought into the community element of just being a Canadian. Um, certainly in hockey, that is essentially ethos, right? It's always about the front of the jersey as opposed to the, the back of the jersey. We're in the States, which where obviously I grew up and grew up around New York City, which is in, you know, maybe among the most individualistic places on the planet, just given the, um, the, 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 the push to make money, the, the, the push for material goods. New York is an incredible place, but it's also a very challenging place employment-wise where you really have to sort of be on your A-game almost on a daily basis. And I think individualism there, Donovan, is really celebrated. You are, you are celebrated for your individual achievements. That's why people like uh, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, they're celebrated, right? They're these individuals who sort of came up and were disruptors in the system. And I just think that I think the way each country looks at itself is just different. I mean, there, there's there are so many people who believe in the idea of American exceptionalism, whether it's true or not. They believe in it. They believe that like being an American is different. You are different by birth than you are in some growing up in some other place. And I think ultimately, 
that all filters down. And I think, you know, we celebrate athletes in America for speaking their mind. And I certainly still do. Even if I disagree with like Kyrie Irving, I, I certainly want him to be able to freely speak and, and say what he says. Um, and so there's just a different, there's a different contract. The other thing, Donovan, I would say this is, and I'm with it on this, the fact that there's so many millions more people in the States, which means there's m- millions of more media structures, information structures. And so you can take athlete X who believes in what you believe and use athlete X to sort of push your opinion on this topic, whether in good faith or bad faith, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty funny that, uh, you know, LeBron sort of put out a mem a couple of days ago, sort of comparing the flu to COVID. And all of a sudden, every right-wing knucklehead is now a, a Lakers fan uh, when the same people were basically knocking LeBron as like uh, sucking on Chairman Mao's feet, right? Because he's a, he's a China lover. So there's a lot of this. There's a lot of... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a lot of bad faith in all of this stuff as well. But I think that's just at its core. That's the difference to me. The difference is um, at the base level of Canada, this is my, again, it doesn't mean I'm right. Just telling you how I see it. Base level of Canada, there's a buy-in to community on more things on a country level, national level, than there is in the US. And one of those things has to do with healthcare. And it's just, you know, it's never going to happen in my lifetime. I've sort of come to grips with it. But I always imagine if somehow somebody pulled off in the U.S. like um, uh, allowing everyone to have sort of free access to medical care and how that would change the shape of the United States. And there's a lot of people having read a lot about this, that a lot of people in the healthcare industry over the last 30 years sold the Americans a bill of goods. They shit on the Canadian healthcare system. They, they intentionally made it so that, um, that private health care was sort of the way to go. And uh, I would just say, having now lived in Canada almost four years, I have seen the other side and all the sort of spins and lies that were told about the Canadian healthcare system, you know, endless lines, you're waiting around the block for this. It's all bullshit. Yeah, there's lines sometimes in the same way there's lines as American. But like the idea that I can go, that if something happens to me, I can walk into an emergency room, get taken care of and not be bankrupt after whatever that is, changes an entire life. And I have means to be able to pay for it if I didn't have that. So I'm in a different situation, but just that whole premise that I would not necessarily have my economic life ruined because I got into some kind of medical situation changes the entire complexion of a country, in my opinion. So I think you're on to something, Donovan, when you when you say that. I'm all be curious in your take. You've spent time in the States, too. You know what? Uh, it was the one individual we talked to for the podcast series, Marvin Spratley. That's when it hit me. Uh, that's when I kind of got a good sense of this is an arena worker that relies on his salary to be paid so he, he, he could pay for you know his daughter's medicine. And I was just thinking, man, like I luckily don't have those issues up here in Canada. Um, I'm able to take care of my son um, because you know we we collectively are in this together. And hearing him talk, I remember after that conversation, all three of us were like speechless. Uh, you know, as we were recording, speechless for like thirty seconds. And I think even Richard, you being, you know, both both sides, U.S. and Canada, I think that hits you as well, knowing that, man, this guy is going through something um, and it would, that we, we can't even relate to. So I think there's definitely, uh, like you were just saying, I think there's definitely uh, s- systemic problems there in terms of like healthcare system. But uh, that interview, that really brought it to earth. That brought it back to earth for me was uh, hearing him speak on that. I'm like, man, we definitely have it a little better up here. Um, 
And yeah, I don't, uh, I think when big name athletes do speak, a lot of people do listen. Um, and that, uh, and their voices really resonate. Uh, and uh, we definitely don't have athletes like that in Canada speaking out as openly, especially in the hockey world. It's, you know, what happens in the locker room stays in the locker room, that kind of mentality. It's all, it's all within the team game. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's a much bigger conversation though to be had. Yeah. I, I will say Canadian hockey players, NHL players in some ways do speak by just following protocol and actually going through it and sort of doing their part to avoid putting themselves in situations where they may be infecting others. And in some ways that, that is a statement to the public that they take it um, seriously. All right, Donovan, you, 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 you forced me to answer a question on my own podcast. Now I have to decide whether I want to keep this or not. There's a lot of pressure now on the net. All right. Follow these two gentlemen on Twitter, Donovan Bennett and Amal Delich. And as I've said, both really two of my favorite people to work with and, and uh, incredibly talented. I, I miss being able to work with those guys at Sportsnet. But I'll have you guys back on. Stay safe to both of you. And thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, Bruce Arthur is a columnist for the Toronto Star. If you are uh, an American listening to this, uh, you may have come across Bruce's excellent work when it comes to his sports coverage. Uh, certainly Canadians who will be listening to this know about Bruce's transition from covering sports to COVID over the last uh, nearly two years now. I'm pleased to be joined by Bruce Arthur. Bruce, let's thank, first of all, thank you for joining me. Um, man, you've had a long two years, my man. So. I want to. Uh, I want to start here. How did your editors approach you about switching from sports to covering the pandemic? Man, two years. I, I, I still haven't. It, it's hard to even think in time in terms of time now. Um, so I was on a Leafs trip in the first week of March in 2020, and um, and I like the, we we got out just ahead of the of of the coronavirus, as everybody called it then, right? Like the last game, the game in San Jose, we played or the least played that, that everyone was at um, was the last game before public health said you shouldn't have fans in the building. So I got home and I did one Leafs game here. And I, I kind of, I was writing from a COVID perspective that whole week. Cause I, I was telling people in sports, like you guys are going to, it's, it's coming for you. Like this is coming for all of us. Um, and the Wednesday when Rudy Gobert tests positive, I write a Rudy Gobert tested positive piece. And then the next day they asked me to write a piece that kind of just summed up where we were in terms of COVID and not just sports, but like all kinds of things. And I tried to put that together. And on the Friday, uh, the Friday night, uh, our then managing editor, Catherine Wallace, and our editor-in-chief, then uh, Irene Gentle, <clears throat> just sent me an email saying, hey, do you want to become the coronavirus columnist? Because uh, sports had all stopped at that point. And I thought about it for a day, and although I knew I was going to do it, but I thought about it for a day to know I wanted to do it. Um, and I asked Catherine later, why did you ask me to do that? And I, I wondered if it was because my Twitter feed is full of news and stuff like that. It was because of the Raptors parade. There was that shooting at the Raptors parade. And I was, on, I was doing TSN that day. I wasn't even writing. And I was on the elevated platform that's in Nathan Phillips Square. And the shooting was ne near where we were. So I kind of covered it as a news story and wrote a, a newsy column about it. And she said, you know what? He could write news. And I went, okay, I'm not sure how that translated to this. Um, and I started right away. I started out on that Sunday and I wrote every day for a month. And uh, I've written some sports in the last two years, just not very many. Is it, you know, you've, I mean, listen, you've, let's just be blunt. You've had 
you've had a lot of acclaim as a sports columnist. You're, you're one of you're you have been known as one of the premier sports columnists in the country. What was your reaction when you started talking to the star about this? Because while the well, I think you initially and instantly recognized that this was going to be one of the biggest stories of our lifetime, if not the biggest story. There is risk in some ways, Bruce, and that you know you have a standing uh, professionally, and now you're going to sort of cede a little bit of that terrain to other people writing sports. What, what was your, I don't know, what was your thought process when, when contemplating this? I mean, part of it was that there wasn't a lot of sports to write at that point, right? And I didn't know when that was going to come back. You know, people look back to the start of the pandemic and say, I thought it was going to last a week or two weeks or a month. I'd been talking to a few people that, in, that I knew in news, and I, my ballpark was like, it was going to be 18 months as a, as a total thing or something like that. And if Delta had just stuck around, I think we would have been pretty close on that. Um, I wasn't scared of it. And I, maybe I should have been, but I wasn't scared of it. I wasn't because I, I, I know how to write sports. I can always go back to sports, right? Like I'm always going to be at home in a press box. That's not something I worry too much about. Um, with this, I really did think it kind of, as you alluded to, it, it's a story of a lifetime. One thing I've thought about a lot in this pandemic is that I've never lived through history directly and in the way that history came to my street. You know, like I've watched it on television, but it's never happened where it came to where I lived. And this is the first time in almost everybody's lifetime where history came to where you lived one way or another. And I, I kind of I thought about that at the start as I kind of went like, I've never gotten a chance to write about history in this way. And let's see if I can do it. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I probably should have been more scared of it. But I was at that point a little scared because I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to pronounce epidemiologist. Like there was a lot I had to learn. Do you think, um, do you think seeing this with a fresh eye in that you weren't a health reporter? It, let me, let, let me scratch that the beginning of that question. Clearly seeing this with a fresh eye because you weren't a health reporter shaped how you ultimately wrote about this in hindsight. Now, as you lo look back 18 months from now, was it an advantage, a disadvantage or both not having a background in this when you started writing it? I, 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 at one point, I was talking to uh, an, a, a professor who talked about extremism because I was at one of the hospital vaccine protests. And he said, um, you know, covering sports is actually a great proxy for covering extremism. They're not that different. You just cheer for your team really, really passionately, right? Like at, at its heart, that's kind of what it is. Um, so I think that helped a little bit because this has been very much a pandemic where people took sides, very hard sides. Um, I think, I don't know if it helped. It helped narratively. It helped in being able to write because sports writers get to write in a little more creative way than most other, than most news columnists, right? Um, it helped in being able to write profiles of people because the best sports writing, as you know, is about people. Um, and it helped because it did become so political. This has been such a political thing. Like the idea that we're all in this together is in, in itself essentially a political lie. Um, the fact that certain ideologies have looked at this different ways because that's how everything works now, because everything has to get laundered through your priors, um, and me included, uh, that's been helpful. Um, I don't know if it helped. It, it, part of it, it did help because I'm used to writing a lot. Like I've had a lot of runs where I write a lot and, and really live the job. Like when the Raptors won the title, I wrote for 63 straight days and Olympics is like everyone's a lifetime. And I feel like, 
this has been like that except for two years, right? Where you just kind of go, you go really hard and that's been helpful. All right. So let's get into sort of some of the, um, some of the specifics about what you've written and, and how you've approached this. This is, this is um, something that's sort of of interest to me because, because I think it's a real conundrum and I want to get your take on this because you actually have to live it. You know, one of the challenges, Bruce, of this subject is that it is obviously of great importance to the public. It, it is literally of life and death importance to the public. At the same time, there are so many in the public who are exhausted by it. And they they don't want to read any more about COVID because it it it's either a reminder of sort of the daily hell that we're in, or they really are begging for an escape. You, as someone who is writing about this, not only do you have to sort of fight that individually, that kind of thinking, you have to sort of push forward because ultimately, like you are providing a service for the public, even if at times the public doesn't want that service. And I wonder just how you have reconciled that kind of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I'm as sick of it as anybody. That's one thing is some people accuse you of like wanting the pandemic to continue. Man, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Like I, I am, I've talked with uh, the, some of the people at my place, like uh, Kate Allen and Jenny Yang and Megan Ogilvie and May Warren, who were kind of part of the original COVID team uh, at the Star. And we're so tired of writing what has been a story that as much as it's been really big and, and spread all over, there is a repetitiveness to it. Um, we've all been through false dawns. We know the patterns of the government. We know the patterns of the public. We know the patterns of the disease, even as it migrates from variant to variant. We're sick of this. I'm sick of this. But the idea of public service is exactly kind of how I've tried to approach this, is that like, I've tried to seek out... The only way I could survive on this job was to report, was to report, to report, to report. And to, so I just called everybody. I called everybody I could, every doctor, every virologist, every epidemiologist, infectious diseases. I tried to get the perspective of frontline doctors, nurses. Like I've just tried to, to get people on the phone to tell me what they think. And, and then I, over time, talking to all these different people, you realize which ones are right the most often, right? Um, and that, it's it's been a really funny thing to to not become an expert, to be, but to become really conversant in it. Like I've actually become a terrible robot in that I can like spit out facts about COVID now and history of it and all of that. Um, but I know people get tired. That's part of what you try to have to guard against. It's like when I take my kids to the beach for wave swimming, I tell them the water doesn't get tired, but you do. And that's COVID. And I actually think that's one thing that's happening right now is everyone, Omicron's too fast and we're too tired. And we're just, we're just going to find out what it is. That's all, that's all that's really going to happen here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's you, the things that have really kept me going through it is the idea of public service. Um, and the idea of trying to, trying to like, I've gotten a lot of nice notes from a lot of different people about that. It's just the idea that you're trying to educate and inform the public as best you can. Uh, like there's something, something a little bit gratifying about that. The guests on the previous segment, uh, Donovan Bennett, Amal Delch, um, we talked about this and did a pretty interesting conversation on it. And I absolutely want to get your take on it because you really, you're far more in the vortex of it than the three of us are. And that is the politicization of COVID, which you're living and you've seen. It's in my estimation, Bruce, and again, I, I am coming from this from an American um centric perspective as someone born in America, but now living in Toronto, 
that while there is politiza- politicization about this in Canada, it is and it is political. It is not nearly as divisive a argument as it is in the U.S., where it feels like literally every COVID-related topic, sports, art, movies, whatever, it's all filtered through the prism of politics, through the prism of tribalism, and you'll, you essentially have to pick a side. It doesn't feel like it's as pronounced a culture war in Canada. And one of the things without sort of, you know, I'll do my best to very paraphrase it quickly. One of the reasons that Donovan Bennett um, thought that was the case was that ultimately there's a, there's a community construct that the majority of Canadians sort of have invested in and believe in when it comes to healthcare. And that is, you know, you are part of the healthcare system. You're, the healthcare system is designed to take care of uh, uh, the people with the least means as much in the same way as the people with the most means, and that you can't necessarily buy your way to the front of the line. And in a certain perspective, the country has to react differently to a pandemic, to a, to a, to a countrywide pandemic, than the U.S., which is far more of an obviously individualistic society, more of, I think, a materialistic, capitalistic society. And that was, well, while all three of us agree, there's certainly politics being played out in Canada. I mean, it's, it's there every day. It's just not at the same level the same invective level uh, as the states. Maybe you disagree because you really are in the middle of this as you someone covering it every day. But that was our perspective. And we were trying to sort of, you know, we were trying to do a thought exercise as to why is it a little bit different. And Amal said maybe it just comes down to 337 million versus 37 million. How do you see it? I think it's also the political history of your country because broadly, if you look at the opposing viewpoints of COVID in North America, primarily, let's just look at Canada and the U.S., Conservatives tend to look at this in a specific, a more specific way, right? It's a lot less about societal responsibility. It's a lot more about individual actions. And that's where you get the idea of vaccination as a social service and individual protection rather than an individual choice. It's hard to have individual choices with a communicable disease, right? Um, and in this country, to get a majority, I mean, if you wanted to speak about it purely politically, the conservatives can get up to about 40% of the country in a federal election. Uh, that's, that's about as high as it gets. The U.S. is much more of a 50-50 proposition. And I think that plus the, the truly intense politicization of the United States where everything, as you noted, runs through the, the kind of culture war car wash, we're still figuring that out. And, and I don't say that as a good thing. Canada's still figuring out, like a lot of Canadian conservatives kind of do American conservative karaoke quite badly. Um, but... If you look at Alberta, that was probably the most ideological response to COVID. And they had an absolutely brutal summer and into the, into the fall. Um, you look at Saskatchewan, which is the other heavily conservative um, province in the country, similar thing, right? And that's, and that's Western conservatism versus Eastern conservatism. There's conservative premiers in the Atlantic who have been excellent in terms of their, their COVID response. Um, Alberta's kind of been somewhere in between those two and and probably has been saved a little bit by the fact that they had a matchless medical infrastructure um, in the province in terms of the the advice they got and and the, and the people they had to draw on. But I, I, I just think that Canada does have more of a collective kind of mindset than the United States um, because it would be hard not to. I think we are not as far along in our culture war as existence um, kind of th- drift, although I think that's coming. 
I just think that what one thing here, like, so here's the basic difference is in the United States, conservatives have taken op- opposition to the vaccine and masks as a core part of what it means to be conservative. It's part of the uniform. We don't have that here. The actual anti-vaxxers in this country aren't probably more than maybe 10% of the country. Um, that's, that's so much stronger, right? Like it just makes a huge difference. Um, but one thing I, I think you and I've talked about this, I honestly think one of the most dangerous things in Canada is comparing ourselves and measuring ourselves by the United States because the, the rate of political rot there of radicalization of institutional failure of organ failure for a country. Like it's, we should not be measuring ourselves against the United States. It's terrifying what's happening. Um, and the pandemic is almost, we've been allowed to look at the United States and say, well, we're doing better than those guys. Yeah, we could still do better. That's the whole thing with Canada is don't measure against the United States, measure against us. Yeah, it's well said. It's probably its own podcast to, uh, t- to get really deep into that. You get a lot of vitriol on Twitter, Bruce. Uh, people call you an alarmist. Uh, people say you're rooting for the pandemic to continue, which really is just among the dumber uh, critiques. I mean, you know, have at it if you want to sort of trash Bruce, but but that's just that's kind of an insane kind of uh, um, topic. But you know, Bruce, you've gotten it all from from you know like a like you're you're a COVID cheerleader to um, your bias when it comes to one point of view um but you forge on and i think this is again just a guess i think given that you covered sports for a long time uh there's probably a part of you that um if nothing else has had experience of sort of people telling you you know this column sucks or your take on the leafs or the the raptors suck it really must have been a real shock to the system i think maybe for some of your health reporters or some of the people in the country who um who are education reporters or you know, who sort of covered stuff where, like, by and large, they essentially just performing service journalism for the public. And now, at least on social media, I mean, they've had to endorse stuff. So I wonder, again, and no one, no one is saying to feel sorry for Bruce, but I just wanted to give perspective for my listeners, just a, a, a sense of what it is. You know, I'll get some of this sometimes if I, if I say something about uh, um Donald Trump or whatever, but I really don't get much of it because I'm not, you know, I'm not writing about COVID every single day. You, you have been, and I see your mentions and like, it's not just Americans yelling at you. Like it's Canadians too. It's, it's been pretty eye opening. Well, I mean, the anti-vax community is small, but it's, it's kind of feral, right? Like it's really, it's really energized. Um, and that doesn't really bother me as much as it just kind of bums me out. Right. Like, cause I wrote it at one point, every anti-vaxxer is a symptom of something that's kind of gone wrong. It's an inability to kind of process real world data and situations and, and, and the stakes. Um, yeah, no, but I've always gotten yelled at a lot on Twitter because I've always tweeted a lot of politics or I have for many years now. So I already had a bit of a thick skin as it comes to that. Now, like over time, the whole sports argument has become, I, I almost, I almost view it, um, it's like a playground version of a fight, right? Like, as opposed to like a bar fight, it's, it's, it's much gentler. Like if we're arguing over whether that was a bad hit in a hockey game, that's just, that's so easy now. That's, it's not hard to stick to what your version of objective reality is and feel good about it with this. I mean, all I can, all I can do in all this is try to be as right as I can as many times as I can every day. And it's a huge responsibility. And so when people yell at me about it, I don't know, I kind of know I've done, I put in the work. 
the stuff about me rooting for the pandemic, as you noted, as I've already said here, man, I just want my kids to be able to play with other kids again, right? Like we've got some underlying conditions in our house and we're not going to do that and except for outdoors uh, or in really specific situations. I want my kids to be able to do that. I want my daughter to go to art class and my son to play tennis and my kids to swim and my other son to play basketball. And like, I want my little girl to go back to physical school and my 10 year old to go back to physical school. I want to take my wife out to dinner. I want to get in a, in a, a find a really good bar, a bar that feels like home and drink myself silly. I want to do all that. Um, and I don't want to write about COVID anymore, particularly. Like I thought I was out actually in the Delta wave. I really did. Like we boosters were under control. We were vaccinating five to 11 year olds. We were winning for like three days, like f- literally three days. And then Omicron popped up in terms of the vitriol though. Like, Sometimes people are right. I've gotten stuff wrong in the pandemic. Absolutely. I've been writing it for two years. But like the stuff where people come at you, I don't know. It doesn't bother me as much as it probably would bother someone who had never seen it before. But you just try not to take it personally. You just try. Like, and a, a lot of it is a measure of, again, an inability or unwillingness to process real world stuff. Like with Omicron, Omicron's really interesting. We're still figuring out what it is. We still don't know. You're watching hospitalizations in Denmark and in England um, because South Africa isn't as much of a comp, but also UK has had a lot of previous in- infection as has Denmark more than us. Um, and the way I laid it, I laid this out in a column, I think two weeks ago, um, where I basically said, this could bring us the worst of the pandemic, which has never come to Canadian shores in a real way. And the thing, and right now it looks like Omicron has a real mildness in it for most people. But, and people called me an alarmist for that, for that piece, especially. Except if you read that piece, what it basically says is what I think is still the case now is the unvaccinated are at a higher risk of hospitalization and our hospitals can't take it. Like that's, and you know what, if I'm wrong on that, if that's the call I'm wrongest on in the pandemic, that Omicron could absolutely overwhelm fragile hospitals in Ontario and across the country. Then uh, can I swear here? Of course, can I do that. Yeah. That'd be fucking great. Like I would, I would spike a football. You can dunk on me all day if I'm wrong on that. But there, even now, there's not an, enough evidence that it is mild enough to overcome for the speed to spread. Right? Like again, I've become a robot for spitting this stuff out. But if I'm an alarmist on that, I've been called an alarmist all along, and I've been go back and read the stuff I wrote at the beginning of the third wave. Like it was dead freaking on. And I, I don't, I don't like kind of keeping score that way. It sucked that it was dead freaking on. It stunk. Like I, this pandemic has been profoundly um, unfair. It has sh- held up a mirror and you, you've used the line. I've used the line. It's a, it's a, the pandemic is a mirror to society. What we care about, what we don't, the systems that work and don't, how you yourself are vulnerable and how you deal with stresses and all those things. Um, and in the, in the kind of totality of all this, it's, it's the people who are most vulnerable, who are suffering the most. And I would like that to end. I would like that to be over. And so like all the people who yell at me, just keep yelling at me. It's fine. Um, I don't really want to be right. I never have this whole time. Honestly. Before we get to the Olympics, Bruce, um, because you have been doing this for such a long time, if you are on social media, as both of us are probably too. Who do you recommend in terms of following for honest, um, intellectual, sobering data on COVID? 
I tend to be kind of Ontario focused because that's been the focus of my coverage. So guys like David Fisman, who's brilliant, sometimes goes a little far and is, is a very acquired personality for some people on Twitter, but I think he's been right a lot and he's brilliant. Isaac Bogosh has been uh, a guy who played it like right up the middle of the whole pandemic, who is just incredibly smart on this stuff. Um, Andrew Morris uh, has been right a lot. Andrew Morris has been right a lot in this pandemic uh, at the U of T. Really good newsletter too. Um, really informative. Um, anyone involved with Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto has been fantastic, uh, led by Janine McCready there. Anyone in infectious diseases there. And Mike Warner, uh, who heads the uh, critical care there, has been great. Um, the people who kind of do the data every day are so helpful. So like Jennifer Kwan, um, John McGrath, Ed Tubb, Bill Como are essential. Now, the thing is, the data is going to become so mangled now that it's going to become less helpful. But like John McGrath, I thought at TBO has written some of the best columns of the pandemic. Um, Ed Tubb has been, I've had people tell me that Ed Tubb could have, like people in the business, people who are like epidemiologists tell me Ed Tubb could be an epidemiologist. And he's doing it on the side from his job as the guy who, who edits uh, kind of the crime section at the star. Um, I, I'm forgetting so many people because there's so many people you could go with, like at a, at a higher level, like John Byrne Murdoch of, of uh, the Financial Times is really great. Trevor Bedford is really, really great. Um, you can kind of, again, over the time of the pandemic, I've kind of tried to judge who's been most right, right, when things actually happen. And... Uh, the Twitter's actually been really good for that. As much as Twitter's a giant, it's like Gotham, right? A big giant mess all the time. Flat out bare knuckle brawls and super villains and all this. Um, it's, it's used as a tool to disem disseminate like information and link up smart people has been incredible. It's been really, really helpful. It's been probably more helpful than it was to me as a sports reporter, I would say. I would agree. I'll give two, uh, maybe you follow them, maybe you don't. Um, and I, if I'm, I'm probably going to mangle their names, but Muge Sevic is a uh, infectious disease expert from the University of St. Andrews, who's, I think, just been on the ball from the jump. And Emma Hodcroft, who um, is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she's from Switzerland. But again, you know, one of the things I've tried to do, just to educate myself, is I find the people I trust, and then I see who they're following, like the experts who they're following. And that usually makes me feel good. Like, if, like, uh, you know, if someone like... Uh, uh, Isaac Bogosh is following this person or like Ed Yang is following this person. Like, I feel like, all right, like even if I don't understand all the science, like I feel like I'm as a lay person, I'm going to get something uh, sort of out of their feeds. Yeah. How good is Ed Yang, by the way? Oh my uh, God. I mean, oh my God. It's been incredible. I mean, just to and be able to, uh, to be able to explain this kind of stuff for a wide scale audience is, is incredible. And he's again, look at, look at what he wrote a year ago and, and he's been correct. He's been correct globally. He's been correct in North America, and he's been correct in England. Uh, let's. I want to finish up on sports here. So, it's, uh, and again, it's still the nexus of COVID and sports, but it's a topic that both of us um, know. We've covered multiple Olympics between me and you. Uh, I think we care about the Olympics, but we also recognize the reality of what it is. We're within two months, Bruce, of the Beijing Games. China's not canceling these games. <laughs> this isn't the United States. I mean, China does what it wants. You see that with its human rights uh, abuses. Yeah, you see that with Peng Shui. I mean, the games are going to go on, and it really is just a question of um, what athletes are going to do. So that's really what I want to get to you. Um, my sense is, as we talk about this in the last week of December, that the athletes of the world are going. Um, they may not be going 
with a lot of confidence in in terms of protocol. They certainly may be fearful, and that's understandable. But I haven't heard any kind of wide scale talk about athletes deciding not to go. So what do you expect from these Beijing games? Because man, like it could go so many different ways. Because none of us really know how China is ultimately sort of treating this pandemic. So I think athletes are going to go broadly because I like the NHL pulled out because there's a huge fiduciary interest at the other end that could be threatened by this. Like if you're, if your players are in a Chinese quarantine for like three weeks after the Olympics, that's a huge problem. Um, it's less of a problem if you're a speed skater. Uh, athletes on the whole and national Olympic committees are d- like, they're kind of built to do, one thing, which is to be athletes and be national Olympic committees, they're going to go. And it it doesn't seem like there's any appetite at all for political boycotts beyond just diplomatic boycotts, which are nothing. Nobody cares. Uh, The Chinese are a little upset about it, but nobody cares. If I was China right now, and I agree with you, I don't think they're going to cancel this thing. I think they're going to try to keep Omicron in a box. And I don't think they're going to care if the media gets it because they'll just put them in quarantine. And some of us may be stuck there a few weeks longer than we'd like to. That's the part I really don't like as an idea of going to this. Um, if I was China, I would be wondering how the Sinovac vaccine uh, works against Omicron. That's what I'd like to know, because they have essentially a zero COVID policy. And the whole basis of the Tokyo Olympics, the whole basis of our vaccine mandate system here, the whole basis of what China had been set up to do was that two doses of vaccine protects you from infection at an extremely high rate, which it did. And now it doesn't. So the problem you got is that the timeline is so compressed. I think if let's say that fancifully, if the winter games were scheduled for May, I think there'd be an excellent chance this thing would be moved because who does China really have to answer to, right? In terms of sponsors, in terms of diplomatically, I think it would be embarrassing for them to move it, but I think they could. They can move heaven and earth if they want, autocratically. So I think it's going to go off and I think Omicron will make it probably pretty messy. Um, but I haven't seen their system up close yet. That's the thing that that's kind of a question for me is how like Tokyo's methods of controlling Delta were basically everyone's vaccinated and try to wear masks. And that was relatively effective. Um, the, Omicron's different. So I'm, again, if I was trying to, I would be conducting kind of tests right now on what Omicron does if you are vaccinated with Sinovac, because it just, it moves so fast in a country like that. If there are vulnerabilities, it will find them. Um, we just need to figure out what the vulnerabilities are. Yeah. And look at the population in that country. You want to talk about an overwhelming medical system, just given the sheer number of people in China. My sense, Bruce, is as we move back to the States that, you know, the NHL and the NBA, certainly the NFL, um, they're going to continue. They're going to try to put these sports on uh, if they have to live with sort of the ridiculousness of like the Raptors game the other day against the Cavaliers where, you know, you can't recognize half the roster. That's just that's sort of just the cost of doing business. Um, my hope, and I wonder if you sort of see it this way, is that if Omicron is ultimately um, a, a shorter wave than these previous waves, and this is really the, the ball game, is that hopefully hospitalizations and ICUs are, you know, relatively kept in check, although you get a certain number. If, if the numbers are so great, it doesn't matter. It overwhelms the health system anyway, but let's sort of hope for the best here. Uh, my sense is that we're not going to have stoppages, uh, like long-term stoppages in the NBA and, and the NHL. Um, I wonder if you see it differently. I think, 
I, I don't know. It feels to me that sort of a little bit of the, I don't want to say the American public because they don't make the decision, but I think Adam Silver really sort of tipped his hand here by saying that like, we sort of have to live with this and we're going to forge on. And I feel like the sports leagues are going to do that. The, they, they have come to realize that maybe the, I hate using this word, but the optics of having a lot of cases aren't necessarily going to, are, um, aren't necessarily going to going to turn into like the public demanding that they don't play. I think the public is, at least the American public, they, they don't blink anymore when it comes to seeing these crazy high case numbers. Yeah. I think what they're doing is they're, they're playing the odds and they're running the numbers, right? Like the odds are, even in the worst case scenario of Omicron, based on the data that we have now, the worst case scenario would be that it was as severe as Delta for those without previous infection, antibodies, or vaccination protection, right? Like the great news here is vaccination protection holds up. It's awesome. Um, and most of the players and staff in these leagues are vaccinated and therefore will not have severe outcomes. They will not have to go to the hospital, the vast majority of them. In the better case scenario where Omicron's mild for everyone, then fantastic, wonderful. They, then you have a lot of people getting a cold at the same time. And they're kind of skipping to the end, especially the NFL, where the NFL is just saying we're not even going to test people. And they've also lost a lot of money during this pandemic and they don't want to lose any more money. And they can still charge full price for a game like last night where the Toronto Raptors lose by 45 with a bunch of guys who nobody's ever heard of coming off the bench. Um, they're kind of assuming this will move really fast. And it should be a quick wave, depending on how much dry tinder you've got. And those leagues are saying we don't have very much dry tinder. Right? That's what makes it kind of interesting, that idea of Kyrie Irving coming back into the NBA. Um, we don't know what Omicron might or might not do to him like it's probably he's probably fine but you're you're playing with just a little bit more risk and the leagues are basically saying that the money we can make is more important than any risk that will be borne by the players since it's small enough that we probably won't be held to account for it anyway and uh, like sports i think this is going to happen though in society as well to a degree where i've talked to a guy who runs who runs a department in a small hospital the other day and he said if you take enough people off my staff because they've tested positive, we can't keep the lights on. And what's going to happen is basically patients are going to have to accept that the staff might have COVID and might give them COVID. And that's the state of affairs because otherwise you can't run a hospital if everyone who's tested positive has the same quarantine requirements as we used to have. So it's the same with grocery stores. It's going to be the same with airlines. Eventually it's going to be the same with a lot of things. And that's why we're just going to find out what Omicron is like in everybody's individual country. will find out. Um, because it just moves way too fast. And so the sports leagues are just kind of saying, well, we can't stop it, so we're just going to plow through it. And I don't know, maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe. Uh, last one uh, for me. You know, I kind I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, Bruce, but I, I've kind of maybe bought into the fact that I think this is a different Leafs team. Let's, let's sort of end on a positive sports note here. Again, I'm not saying they're going to win the Stanley Cup. I mean, I think at a certain point, like, you get to the semifinals, it's such a roll of the dice, who's healthy, who's not, particularly in a COVID era, COVID universe. But it does at least, you know, before this little stoppage here, it did feel like I was sort of, I don't know, it's constructed a bit differently. And I think whatever that difference is, is is pretty good. Um, if I had to bet, I'm not saying I'd bet my entire life fortune on it, but if I had to bet... I do think this is the year they get out of the uh, opening round finally. How do you, and again, we're only in the last week of December, but how do you see it right now? I mean, I, as you said, it's a crapshoot. There's a lot of 
There's a lot of things that could happen. Um, but assuming all, th- all other things being equal, these guys should get out of the first round. They should get out of the second round. They're a good team. The race with the Leafs has always been partly between their roster construction, partly between their internal improvement, and partly between the mental game at the biggest moments. And they've talked about this, and Kyle Dubas, the general manager, has talked about this, is you kind of need scars in, in the hockey. That's one of the ideas, is that you play enough big moments and you learn how to play them because you're so motivated by the bad losses, and Lord knows the Leafs have enough of those. But my question is really going to be, like, that I've always said with the Leafs every year, they will find out at the same time as we will when in the biggest moment, whether it's when they give up two quick goals against the Bruins and skate around like, like they don't know what they're doing for a half an hour or all of a sudden they can't score against Columbus or they, they kind of fall apart a little bit and do that same kind of thing against Montreal. How are they going to react when the, when the really heavy weather hits, when you have to play your best under the highest pressure and they have never... They've never quite lived up to that. The other thing is that I think Jack Campbell might be a more stable and reliable goalie than Fred Anderson. So I think they got a lot going for them. Like they've put together a really talented team that has a pretty good idea what it is and can beat you in more than one way now, I'd say. And you just keep taking shots. Just keep taking shots. Uh, Hockey is a game that's a little bit of a crapshoot anyway, right? I've always said these guys kill themselves to have a chance to win a coin flip and win another one and win another one and win another one. All you can do is give yourself the best chance. That's kind of where the Leafs are, I think, right now. It's crazy, Bruce, to think about that after all the um, the talk, and rightfully so, about Kyle Dubas signing signing those four forwards to the contracts, the Leafs being in a little bit of a cap jeopardy, the the way the sort of the construction of the roster is, all the moves that Dubas has made, and what may end up being sort of his game-changing move is Jack Campbell and Kyle Clifford for Trevor Moore in a third round pick. And that may be the move that's that separates this team from where it's always hoped to be to to where it might be. Uh, you know, a move that I'm sure at the time, uh, it was Fe- looking this up now, February 2020 wasn't exactly the biggest coverage point for the Toronto Star and other places that cover the Leafs. On that trip, I remember Jack Campbell went home to L.A. because he'd been in L.A. Um, before the Leafs, and then we wrote a little bit about it. And But no one thought he was going to be anything. Who was it? It was Paul McClain, I think. He used to be the head coach of the Ottawa Senators. Said, they call it hockey. They should call it goalie. And there is truth, there is truth to that. Um, but you're right. Like One thing with hockey, and like every sport, hockey especially, though, you try to make trades where you win at the margins. And the Leafs have this core of really talented guys, so you try to maximize the margins around that. That's one of the challenges Dubas has had is that he signed those guys assuming the cap would go up and then there was a pandemic. That didn't work out. Yeah. Bruce Arthur is a columnist for the Toronto Star. Uh, Bruce, uh, again, I'm a huge fan of your newspaper and I think the people who've been working there have been grinding and working just incredible hours and providing really just important coverage for the public. So, um, you know, on behalf of, uh, of a print subscriber, Bruce, not just digital, by the way. I actually literally get the paper delivered delivered to my home. Um, I really appreciate what you guys what you guys have done. I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. I love reading. Um, I love reading newspapers and magazines. And uh, there's a great line from my friend Scott Price, who worked at Sports Illustrated with me for a long time, when I told him about the Toronto Star, and he said the Toronto Star is a newspaper that is always punched above its weight, um, which I always thought was a great line about the star. I'm not sure that's so true anymore because you have new owners who clearly spent a lot of money 
um, to uh, to improve the product. And I really appreciate that. But that's that is a great compliment to Toronto Star is that with a short staff, it's like it's always approached uh, its its uh, its its sort of place as a, as a national newspaper, even though it's based in Toronto. So I uh, I appreciate what you guys are doing, and, and thank you for your coverage of the pandemic. Thanks, Dutch. You know what? Working with the COVID team, those those names I mentioned earlier, Yang, Allen, Warren, Ogilvy, my editor, Janet Hurley. It's been really, it's been one of the most professionally satisfying times in my life because I see what what it's taken for them to do the work. Um, three of them are young moms. Um, I've seen the cost that they've had to kind of bear and balance. And it's been honestly incredible. Um, and it's happened with a lot of people at the star is that yeah. they're just four, they're, year, four years from now. When you, yeah. I was gonna say four years from now, when you get asked to do a foot fantasy football column, don't complain, Bruce. <laughs> uh, it's been it, honestly, I'm, I'm glad to work for this newspaper at this moment in history. I really feel pretty good about that. Yeah, no, it, you guys have, you guys have done uh, the profession proud. All right, Bruce, thank you very much for joining me today on the sports media podcast. All right, back in the studio. Um, if you stuck with us for this amount, we appreciate it. I know this is a long podcast, but um, it's a, obviously a pretty important topic, and I wanted to try to get into it with some uh, with some depth. My thanks, of course, to Donovan and Amal and Bruce for their time and their insights. If you like these podcasts, please uh, head to the Richard Deitch Sports Media page on Apple or Spotify and leave us a five-star review and a nice note as to why you like this podcast. That stuff has real meaning. Previous podcast guest, Ryan Clark, was the guest before this, the ESPN NFL analyst, former, obviously, longtime safety for the Steelers and uh, the Redskins. And uh, he was great. Just really went deep into sort of how he transitioned from playing to broadcasting and just how he approaches his job. Before that, Kavitha Davidson and Jane McManus on the biggest sports stories of 2022, what we expect uh, to happen. One before that, baseball round, writer roundtable with Britt Ciroli and Jason Stark, my colleagues at The Athletic. Uh, and then just go through the list. Hopefully there'll be stuff you like. Rebecca Lowe of NBC, Mike Breen and Ian Eagle together for what was a great NBA conversation. Pam Oliver of Fox Sports and uh, her career. Chris Jericho of AEW. Robert Griffin, third of ESPN. Want to thank everybody at Cadence 13 for their support of this podcast. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, this will be the last podcast of 2021. God, man, I hope 2022 is better. It's got to be. So thank you for the support and doing this podcast now for a while, uh, including obviously starting at Sports Illustrated. And uh, and people have stuck with it, by and large. And uh, for what is a niche topic, which is what sports media is, even though, you know, it obviously has its connotations in business and, and everything else. Um, I really appreciate it. I know your time is valuable. I know people listen to a lot of podcasts and the fact that this little podcast uh, – still continues to get uh, the downloads it does um, i'm most appreciative so thank you i want to thank uh, uh i want to th- i want to thank certainly patrick antonetti for his hard work and wish him certainly a great uh new year's eve in 2022 and i wish the same for you everybody out there be safe and thanks again for listening to the sports media podcast